Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by House of Representatives member David Price, who's going to talk to us about his book, The Congressional Experience, An Institution Transformed. This is the fourth edition of this book, which Price has revised um, a number of times. This was recently published in 2021 by Rutledge Press, um, and it is a fascinating exploration of Congress from both a personal, institutional, and academic point of view. Um, but I'm going to let Representative Price tell us a little bit about that today when while we chat. Um, I'd like to welcome Representative David Price to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to write a book about Congress as a member of that institution. Hello, Representative Price. Thank you. I'm happy to join you and, and your audience today and to, to talk about this. It's um, it is the fourth edition, this book that uh, I just got out, and uh, uh, it's been 15 years, though, since the third edition. So uh, a lot has happened since then in terms of my career and, and also the institution and the country. So uh, it's been quite a challenge to uh, put uh, all this in perspective. I uh, first wrote the book when I was a junior member of Congress. I uh, had... Um, been urged by some political, I came out of political science as a career. I, I taught at Yale University and Duke University after my, uh, after getting my PhD and uh, uh, began uh, dabbling in politics once I took the position at Duke University in 1973 as uh, a, jo- a joint appointment in uh, political science and also the, uh, the new Institute of Public Policy, what's now the Sanford School of Public Policy. I had a, an appointment in both places and began uh, 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 some North Carolina political involvement during those years. And eventually you might say the tail wagged the dog. And in, in, uh, in 1985, I took a, a leave of absence to run for Congress in the fourth congressional district and was elected in, in 86. And that's, uh, of course that, that story is still in the book about, uh, how that came about and, and what that first, uh, campaign looked like. But there were political science friends who urged me to keep a journal. I didn't quite do that, but I did take a few notes here and there. And I certainly uh, uh, thought it would uh, be possibly worth reflecting on at some point. It's still hard to do, though. And I had to be persuaded. Anyway, I did it. I did it. And in uh, 1992, got out the first edition of this of this book, which reflected on my first two terms, running, getting elected, reelected breaking into the House as an institution, and also some thoughts that I had at that point on uh, topics like uh, religion and politics, the ethics of public service, uh, congressional and and political reform. Um, But it was a thinner volume at that point and and focused on breaking into the institution. And of course, the the later volumes, because a lot of uh, especially academic users of the book have uh, urged me to keep... um, maybe an abbreviated form, but keep some of that early material in there. It's still it's still there a good bit about what it's like to first run for Congress or what it was like, uh, you know, 30 years ago to do that and and breaking into the institution. But there's, of course, a lot of reflections on, uh, on how those things have changed, how the institution have changed and what it has been like to, um, you know, develop into a senior member, to take on leadership positions, to um, to initiate such projects as the House Democracy Partnership with a commission that deals with uh, uh, peer-to-peer relationships when emerging uh, democracies and 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 so on. A lot of a lot more on foreign policy. Uh, somewhat revised reflections on uh, the state of, uh, of of the Congress, the institutional reform. Uh, there's there's plenty to uh, write about in terms of the uh, changes in the institution. And so I deliberately did a couple of things with this last edition. First, I did add the subtitle an institution transformed because that's a focal point of this fourth edition. How, uh, and, and of course the, 
the Trump presidency has a lot to do with that, as well as changes within Congress itself. And then secondly, I chose a cover which uh, has some storm clouds over the Capitol. My, my wife uh, urged me to do that, and I think it's a great idea because uh, this is, uh, this is a, a time of, of, of transition and of uh, trouble and of challenge. And so uh, the, uh, I, I don't want just a tourist brochure picture of things. I'm not about to give that. I'm trying to give a more nuanced uh, view, which is, uh, which is hopeful about the institution. It's certainly positive account of what it's like to serve in the institution. But I, I certainly don't want to gloss over the challenges and, and uh, particularly coming out of the Trump presidency now and the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, pandemic and, and the uh, racial reckoning the country's been going through. These are, these are challenging times and uh, there are very real questions how well our institution uh, is able to live up to the challenge. And that was one of the first questions I wanted to ask you about in reading through this book. And and again, it's really fascinating the way that you have kept some of the older um, experiences that you had, previous earlier experiences, and then you keep building on them. And I, I read with, with great relish your experience in losing re-election and then coming back and, and running again. I thought it was really fascinating and and something I would certainly assign to my students to to read through in terms of you know what was going on during that period and how that that really felt on the ground. Um, but you say that 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 Congress is in transition. Um, that's a theme in the book, and that it's enduring in this sort of period of transition. Um, and again, you know, we've seen Congress under physical attack on January sixth. Um, we've seen it under perpetual attack in the media um, from voters, obviously. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what you've seen at the, as this sort of move and this transition in, in our understanding of Congress's role? Well, legislative institutions uh, are, um, I, I guess we should never expect to be popular favorites. Um, in fact, um, when we're dealing with our fellow parliamentarians in, in these sessions uh, with the House Democracy Partnership, uh, I, I say in the book, uh, I sometimes recount the uh, survey that was taken some years ago that showed that uh, people who watched C-SPAN regularly and knew the Congress well actually had a less favorable impression of the Congress than those who did not. So uh, that's, that's a kind of sobering finding. Uh, uh, but it's it's true. I mean, con legislative institutions, parliamentary institutions, are uh, arenas of conflict. They're arenas of conflict resolution. Now, in a lot of our partner countries, the alternative to that is literally fighting in the streets, and everybody knows that. But but still, it's often messy and it's often not pretty. The uh, the pictures of uh, of conflict that we see on C-SPAN. I don't think they're totally indicative, by the way, of the reality of the Congress. And I do talk about the uh, the, the differences uh, um, among different uh, uh, congressional arenas. I happen to be in a leadership role in two that are relatively less conflictful. The House Democracy Partnership, this bipartisan commission that works uh, in a peer-to-peer -peer relationship with, uh, with a couple of dozen developing countries, uh, that's totally bipartisan, has been all along. And the Appropriations Committee, the committee where I've served and uh, now chair the Transportation and Housing Subcommittee, Appropriations is, is cooperative compared to many of the others. Uh, that's not to say we don't get swamped by uh, bipartisan conflict and have trouble passing our bills on time. And that's a, and that's a story that's, uh, that's pretty well known. We're certainly not immune to conflict. But there are... Um, there are uh, processes by which we put our bills together in a in a cooperative way, and we uh, we generally are able to uh, keep the government open and keep uh, keep the uh, the key programs uh, funded, and that does in a system like ours. We're not a parliamentary system, after all. We often have divided government, so there, by definition, has to be bipartisan co cooperation to even uh, do the basic things. So. Uh, there, there is some some variation among uh, different aspects of, of of Congress and and congressional life, but if you're talking about uh, 
the institution transformed. Certainly one main aspect of that transformation is a kind of deepening polarization. And I describe polarization not just as the parties becoming more homogeneous internally and further separated from each other, but also uh, a kind of asymmetrical development where the uh, Republican Party in particular has developed more to, to more of an ideological extreme. That was uh, during the, the previous decade when John Boehner was forced out as speaker. Some of the internal problems that posed for Republicans were quite clear, but it also poses great problems when it comes to doing the kind of bipartisan compromises that governing requires because uh, uh, the Freedom Caucus, uh, the, the kind of divisions within the uh, Republican Party uh, often make it just very, very difficult. And that was one of the the parts that you talk about with regard to Boehner, as you note, essentially being forced out of the position of his speakership by his party. Um, right. That that it wasn't it wasn't an attack from the other party, and it wasn't a scandal. Essentially, it was it was basically he was not where the rest of the party in the House Republican Caucus was, um, and he got tired of it from everything that I've read. And you probably know him more personally that he just seemed like he's like I'm done. Um, I, I, I can't keep this house together um, quite well, literally. Well, it's interesting. John Boehner just wrote a book himself, um, which has gotten a good bit of uh, attention. And he, he, he uh, I, I uh, had an interview with Dan Boltz of the Washington Post uh, right after that book came out, talking about my book and saying, boy, I wish I had had some of those salty quotes to uh, to to use in, uh, <laughs> you know, in my account of uh, Boehner's uh, troubles. Uh, but, but actually, Boehner does give some of the personal flavor uh, that uh, accompanied that, that period. Um, the, the other marked uh, difference or transition in the, in the House has to do with, uh, with the increased centralization of the House. And that's, that's, of course, related to the polarization. A polarized, uh, divided chamber requires uh, more centralization and, and, and a, and a kind of stronger leadership techniques in order to get things done. But uh, that centralization uh, uh, in, in the case of the Republicans has uh, certainly Newt Gingrich was the one who took it to, uh, to new heights. But uh, even that centralized power and control was not enough to save John Boehner. And, and it's one of the points that you make with regard to this, this centralization that this is also kind of a shift from the reforms early um, in the 1970s, where there was a decentralization and a sort of pushing out of power and and sort of sort of the the way we do business to committees and subcommittees. That that has kind of retracted over the last 20 or 30 years um, because of the polarization. Um, and so from your own experience, because you've lived through some of that shifting and changing, um, can you talk a little bit about how the the sort of centralized version of the House operation, um, how that impacts also the, what the committees are able to do? Yes, that early, that early development that you're talking about is actually a kind of... Uh, mix of centralization and decentralization. I, I try to explain that in the book and others have explained it as, uh, as well, of course. Uh, we're talking now about the uh, changes mainly under democratic leadership in the, uh, in the 70s and, uh, and uh, 80s to, to, to some degree, where uh, there was a, yes, there was a, uh, a, a devolving of power to subcommittees and individual members. People came to the House uh, impatient to uh, make a mark, impatient to take initiatives, impatient with the uh, the sometimes stifling leadership of the uh, full committee chairs, often conservative Southerners. And so the, uh, the, the, the reform period of the 1970s saw a decentralization, if you're talking about the power of those committee chairs, but often the device chosen to break their hammerlock on power was in fact enhanced leadership. So, so you had a kind of dual development toward, uh, toward a, 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 almost a responsible party model in, in political science terms, uh, 
people advocating that on the part of leadership, a more programmatic, more coherent kind of uh, leadership role combined with a uh, devolving of power within the committees to the subcommittees and individual members. That So that kind of dual movement characterized congressional reform for uh, and, and that was that was really still playing out at the time I, time I came to the Congress in the in the late uh, 80s. Uh, my experience, though, was that those committee chairs still had a lot of power. I mean, it must have been really something earlier because by the by the time this had played out in the in the late 80s, they still had a lot of power. And at the time that uh, we lost the 94 election, the Democrats lost. I lost my own seat. Uh, Newt Gingrich became speaker. Um, Newt Gingrich uh, really uh, took the centralization to new heights. I mean, the, the committees and subcommittees were, were pretty much subject to his, uh, his will. And I said at the time, in the, this would have been earlier editions of the book, I, I said this is, uh, I, I, I gave a lot of coverage to the uh, excesses of that uh, centralized power. But I also said that neither I nor I think very many other Democrats, when we get back in control, we're not going to want to return to the old ways. The old days when Danny Rostenkowski and John Dingell ruled the roost, we're going to, we're going to want to strike a better balance. And sure enough, uh, when Nancy Pelosi came to power in 2007, she wasn't about to go back to the, uh, to, to, to what she and I had both encountered when we came there in the, uh, in, in the eighties. And, uh, Nancy had a, had a, um, I think she had a, a taste for uh, the exercise of power. She, she wanted to be a strong speaker and, and in many ways she needed to be a strong speaker because of the uh, challenges we were facing and the difficulties of getting any kind of cooperation across party lines. And in terms of um, what you started, started off talking about in this regard, um, in terms of when citizens watch Congress in action or committees in action, as you say on page 314, um, I think you're quoting, um, I forgot who you're quoting. It says, democracy and no mess. That's not possible. Um, and, and I really found that that captured so much of your dialogue throughout the book um, because you talk about the mess that is the process of legislating. Um, yeah, and- yes, I'll go back to that. I'm quoting you, I'm John Hibbing or Roger Davidson, one or the other. <laughs> anyway, it's true. The, the, the uh, legislative branch is inherently uh, somewhat messy, and we should never expect to be uh, loved as a, as a branch of government. But I, yes, what I meant to say earlier was that uh, we, need to, uh, we need to pay attention to that that negative public view and and that uh, the the kind of lack of legitimacy that some people uh, feel about uh, about legislative institutions, I I would say let's aim for respect rather than love, and let's aim for uh, for competence and and uh, we we, uh, we we are going to have to remain uh, somewhat messy. We're going to be always an arena for conflict uh, resolution, but it does beat the alternative. And the conflict resolution needs to take place in, in a way that uh, uh, seems fair and seems open and accountable. And that, uh, that I think, should be what we, uh, what we aim at. And uh, it, it is hard. I think the, the, uh, the ideological direction the Republican Party has taken uh, does, does, does make it hard to... to uh, to, to operate in a, in a, in a cooperative fashion, uh, you know, adversarial politics can still have, uh, have a certain respect and, and legitimacy, I, I hope and believe. And I do think our, our Congress, despite the, uh, despite the centralization, despite the polarization, it is a place where, uh, as I said, there is some nuance, not every arena is equally conflictful and members, members can uh, still, carve out a role for themselves that involves uh, uh, cooperation across party lines. It involves initiatives such as the one I took in, uh, in getting the House Democracy Partnership going uh, 15 years ago. Uh, initiatives such as the ones I undertake uh, 
on the Appropriations Committee now, often in cooperation with uh, Republicans. You know, it's, uh, it's still a very complicated place. And I would say it is harder for individual members to come in and make a mark than it was when I first got there. It is not impossible. It is not a totally locked down parliamentary type institution. And uh, members who work at it can still uh, find uh, places where they can take initiatives and do good work. And and in terms of some of the, the points that you're making here in terms of, you know, coming in and being, you know, a, a junior member and then sort of moving through into leadership as you have done. And and you've mentioned a couple of times the, the House Democracy Partnership. Um, and for those who haven't read the book, um, I would love for you to explain to um, listeners how you set that up and what the role of the House Democracy Partnership is in context of the United States Congress. Sure, I'm happy to do that. I, uh, I should note probably that the book didn't even have a chapter on foreign policy until the third edition. And that tells you something about, uh, about my career and about, I think, the way most uh, members uh, relate to, to foreign policy. It's, uh, it, it, with me, with, it's always been an, an interest given my academic background and, and uh, it's been, I, I represent a district that's reasonably uh, well connected to the world. So, so foreign policy involvement is always something that I've wanted to do and have done more and more of over the course of my career. But it wasn't until the third edition that I, that I thought it demanded a, a separate chapter by virtue of my, my work and the, the, the work uh, that, uh, yeah, is then elaborated in the current edition has to do with uh, efforts to promote the peace process in the Middle East and efforts to promote uh, legislative strengthening uh, uh, in through the through the House Democracy Partnership and that that work started. I was very uh, a very junior member when I got involved with the so-called Frost Commission, named after Martin Frost of Texas. It was a bipartisan commission in that early period the time when uh, the Soviet Union was falling apart and uh, the communist states of Eastern Europe were needing to change their showcase parliaments into real parliaments. That was a unique moment in history. And we got involved in reaching out to those parliaments, a commission within the House of Representatives, and helping bring them along in terms of their their technical capacities, their, their uh, research capacities. We sent staff over for weeks at a time and and uh, traveled to Central and Eastern Europe uh, in, in a way that really did. I, I sometimes told people that's the first time in the Congress that I felt I really was directly using my political science uh, background in working with, these, uh, working with these countries. Well, unfortunately, when Newt Gingrich came to power, he, he shut that down in the mid-90s. But I, uh, I've always thought that was a mistake and um, managed 15 years ago on a bipartisan basis with the... Uh, help of uh, David Dreyer of California, who was my partner in this, uh, we, uh, we founded the, what we now call the House Democracy Partnership. And, uh, but we did pick up a lot of the ideas from that earlier effort to strengthen parliaments in Central and Eastern Europe. For one thing, we still had a lot of unfinished business in the former uh, Soviet space. We uh, working with countries like Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, uh, and uh, as well as uh, North Macedonia and Kosovo in uh, in former Yugoslavia, we, we're working with working with these countries that uh, still still are in that democratic development. We we also though work worldwide with countries like Kenya and uh, Liberia and Indonesia, many many partner countries. At a time when democracy isn't necessarily on the march, I mean we uh, we we really uh, a lot of the countries we're working with. For example, Afghanistan, tragically, uh, um, Sri Lanka, Burma, these, these countries are in a, uh, in a kind of backsliding mode at the, at the moment. And uh, there's, there's cause for concern worldwide about the uh, resiliency of, of democracies. So we have one piece of that. We, we focus on the parliament and we just say, Whatever you're doing in, in trying to promote democracy and human rights, remember the legislatures. You, you know, whatever happens in terms of elections in a given country, free and fair elections, we know how important that is. But it's even more important what happens between elections, 
because between elections, you either have representative, effective, responsive institutions, or you don't. And if you don't have those, if you don't develop those, then democracy will fail. And, and, I, and I found your writing about this really important because, as you say, democracy is not necessarily on the march at the moment. Um, and so more arguments are being made for democracy and also the space where, where you can have conflict resolved across opinions um, without, as you note, also having it you know, turn into fighting in the streets, um, which we've also seen, obviously, in the United States. Um, well, we're, I, not I wanted... taking the, we're not taking on the toughest cases. I, I will, will readily acknowledge that. What we're doing is, 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 is in some ways taking on the best cases in terms of people who are uh, countries where there has been a, a significant reform movement and where the parliaments have shown capacity and, and they're people we can work with. We, uh, we, we, we concentrate on, on those countries and trying to help them succeed. And and uh, and again, I think this is an important important role for people also who who have lots of experience in you know in in the United States legislature. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit in terms of Congress in transition. It's also one of the points that you make as somebody who has voted on a number of impeachments. Um, the the role of the United States Congress, particularly in the constitutional framework. And how it operates with regard, especially to an executive, um, an executive over the years like Bill Clinton, who was brought up um, and who was impeached, and then subsequently like Donald Trump, who was in fact impeached twice. I know the book went to press before the second impeachment, um, so you don't really write about it, but you do talk about those two impeachments and the role of Congress in terms of how it should be relating to and responsible to the people in terms of how the executive operates. Right. The, uh, the two impeachments uh, do uh, bring the chapter on polarization to a uh, conclusion, and I think appropriately so, uh, because uh, both impeachments were, were partisan impeachments in terms of proceeding almost totally along party lines. And they uh, they are indicative of polarization, but I but I do argue very strongly in the book that um, the two impeachments are not equivalent. And um, I, I'm aware, of course, that I might be expected to to think that because of my uh, my role in uh, opposing one and and uh, and and supporting the other. But I uh, nonetheless try to separate my my personal. Uh, involvement from, uh, from the way one might uh, look at those impeachments. They, they certainly both in, involve uh, party polarization. Uh, I, I say the, the famous quote from the Federalist by Alexander Hamilton about the worst thing about impeachment, the biggest danger will be that it would proceed along partisan lines. That was probably the most quoted phrase in debate on both impeachments. But uh, I, I do say there was a certain relish for the impeachment of Bill Clinton on along partisan lines that that really did not uh, did not meet the the constitutional standard for impeachment. It met the con- it met the standard for bad behavior. There probably was ample grounds for censure, and and Clinton himself was uh, was open to censure, uh, but uh, the Republicans were hell bent on that impeachment, and I think without uh, a strong constitutional case. Uh, but then when you turn to the Trump impeachment. I talk about the hesitancy on the Democratic side to uh, to pursue impeachment, even though there was plenty through the Mueller investigation. There was plenty of uh, suggestion of uh, certainly obstruction of Congress, and and uh, much uh, much that would have warranted impeachment. But it wasn't until the Ukraine matter, the attempt to extort the president of Ukraine, until that came to light, and then it became. Uh, for many of us, just a, an imperative, a constitutional imperative to pursue impeachment. It wasn't like that was uh, that was optional. I don't think we did it with uh, relish. In fact, I think uh, the main partisan consideration was uh, was how uh, how it might be a, a negative in terms of uh, the politics of the of the situation. But I uh, I do think that was uh, an important. Uh, exercise in our constitutional responsibility. And of course, I feel even more that way about the uh, 
the impeachment that followed then the uh, attempted insurrection. And and I was going to ask you about how that that subsequent impeachment, obviously, you know, prior to prior to the 1970s, um, we hadn't really had very many impeachments in the 20th century, in fact. Um, and then we, we, you know, we have the articles of impeachment that are, are being brought forward against Nixon that prompt his resignation, articles of impeachment that are all ultimately passed with regard to Bill Clinton. And then we end up with Donald Trump, who's impeached twice. Um, and, and so the, the role of Congress with regard to impeachment seems to have ratcheted up. Um, and you talk a bit about this in the book. Um, because it does go to that that Hamiltonian quote also um, that that it's possible that the sort of threshold for impeachment will be less if you do it more. Um, and can you talk about Congress's role in regard to what it's supposed to be doing with regard to impeaching a president? Well, that's that's you're raising really important questions and. Uh... It's, it, it is true that, uh, that we've had more impeachments. It's also true that we've never had a president that uh, behaved as badly in certain respects as did Donald Trump. So that's ratcheted up as well. You know, it's not just that we're more partisan. Uh, it's also that the behavior is more egregious. You know, the Nixon example is, uh, is actually a better one of a, of a less partisan time, maybe, but also uh, the... Uh, the capacity of, of both parties to uh, uh, to deal with uh, egregious uh, presidential misconduct. Uh, it's not to say every Republican uh, welcomed that or did it from the start, but still, in the end, the the Republican elders did what they had to do and and uh, and edged uh, Nixon uh, out of out of office. So that uh, is what should have happened, I believe. With Trump, I think the offenses were as bad or worse, and and I I believe the country would have been well served had the Republican elders done with Trump what they did with Nixon, but they weren't about to do that, and that does say something about where we are in terms of the uh, the the partisanship in in this country, and and I think the. I use in the book, I borrow it from some political scientists, the, 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 the hollowing out of the parties that has occurred. I, I think a, um, a, a healthy, substantial, kind of institutionally developed Republican Party would have never been taken over by Trump in the first place and, and certainly would have had more of a capacity to deal with Trump than, uh, than the Republicans in Congress displayed. And and I wanted to ask you about that because it is you do you do talk about the asymmetrical nature of the the movement of the Republican Party to the right, also away from compromise, which is the sort of um, you know hallmark of this Madisonian system. Um, are the Democrats going in that same direction as we talk about the hollowing out of the parties? Um, the Democratic Party at this point seems more committed to, you know, sort of the idea of working together, even if there are also bomb throwers. Um, but is this is this asymmetrical nature one that's really going to continue to potentially harm the capacity of Congress to do its work? Well, there are a lot of questions about the, the future course of the Republican Party. And I, and I certainly think we all have a stake, as I say in the book, in the, uh, in the emergence of a, uh, a center-right party uh, uh, that, that is uh, able to uh, get its act together in terms of uh, campaigning and governing and, 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 and being part of this, of this adversarial political uh, system that we, that we have. That, uh, that is to be hoped for, I think, by, by all of us, that there, there, there be a, 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 a uh, movement toward uh, more, more conventional party operations on the Republican side. Uh, Democrats, uh, no, have not gone as far. Uh, we, we do have our outliers ideologically, uh, and uh, some of that's on display as we speak, as we try to pass appropriations bills and, and budgets and so forth. We, uh, and sometimes the people at the at the ideological 
ends of the spectrum try to use their leverage. That uh, that has been done big time on the Republican side, and we're seeing some of it too. But I but I do think the Democratic Party, thus far anyway, has uh, maintained a greater greater unity, and and a, and a more coherent uh, approach. But uh, it uh, it's 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 very important to 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 do that. Uh, in, ter- in terms of uh, our um, ability to govern, especially with very narrow margins, and so we're, we're concentrated on that at the uh, at the moment. I uh, there's other one other aspect of the book that might be relevant to this, so let me bring it up. It has to do with um, a kind of unlikely topic, maybe uh, the the public service in moral perspective. I, uh, I I talk, and this this I actually had in the very first edition of the book uh, a reflection on. Uh, what it, uh, what it meant, what it should mean to be a morally responsible member of our institution. And uh, I uh, talked about the, uh, the kind of uh, Lone Ranger mentality. That dates me, I realize, but it uh, kind of captures the, uh, the idea that we often have that, that moral people, virtu- virtuous people, are people who declare their independence of institutions, who declare their independence of, of affiliations, uh, and, and, and sort of chart their own course morally. And of course, there are times when one does need to do that and where that's admirable. But uh, the Congress of the United States is, is a place that needs institutional investment on the part of its members. I'm not talking about uncritical uh, patriotism toward the institution. I'm talking about the kind of patriotism that is a kind of, uh, it combines loyalty with, with, uh, with constant efforts to improve and reform. And uh, so uh, a member of Congress needs to feel responsibility, not just to his or her uh, uh, social media audience or his or her external constituency, uh, but needs to feel responsibility to, um, for, the res- for the function of the institution. We need to ask, myself, ask yourself, what, what responsibility do I have if the committees and the parties even are critical to the functioning of the Congress and the coherence of, um, of congressional operations and accountability and so on. If that's true, then what's my responsibility to make those institutions work? And uh, I think party members, that's, I bring, bring this back then to the way the parties operate. Party members need to ask themselves those questions. And I think uh, there's a lot of evidence that not enough party members are asking themselves those, those questions. So, uh, again, I'm not looking for uh, I'm not looking for anybody marching in lockstep, but I am am looking for an appreciation of the what it takes for an institution to function, the kind of compromise that's necessary, and uh, and and the the need not just to set yourself off in righteous aloofness. You know, I, I talk about Dick Fenno finding congressional scholar Richard Fenno finding so many people running for Congress by running against Congress. That's very tempting, but actually you need to take some responsibility for uh, being a member of Congress and making the place work. It's, it's one of the Federalist Papers that I tend to assign to my first year students in my introductory class is Federalist 57, where Madison makes that exact argument that you're talking about, um, that you have to have a certain pride and investment in, in the institution itself. Um, Otherwise, it's 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 you know it's going to be a whole bunch of people who are doing a whole bunch of things that don't ever coordinate, um, and they're not committed to the institution itself of Congress. Um, That's right. Well, and, well and, Madison certainly did make make that assumption that for the institutions to work, uh, there there would have to be that kind of uh, that kind of commitment to the institution. Madison and the other framers also, of course, talked about civic virtue. And I close the book with a reflection on that, that uh, what does civic virtue mean? It, it, it may, uh, may sound naive uh, among the rough and tumble of politics, but it's, uh, it's actually not naive. It's, it's, a, it's a critical aspect of democracy. There has to be some capacity on the part of office holders, and I would say on the, capa- on the part of citizens, to, to, to make the common good your own. You know, yes, you pursue your interests and your vision, and you, you pursue that uh, uh, very uh, single-mindedly. But but at the same time, you understand that your vision is not the only vision, and that uh, 
the uh, to, to live in a in a diverse and pluralistic uh, republic, we're we're going to have to uh, have some uh, common vision, some ability to arrive at a common vision, and that uh, both office holders and citizens need to uh, be able to do that. And and uh, I, I say there when, a, when an interest group comes in and tells me what they want, you know, what their demands are. I, of course, I listen to that. I respect that. But I tell you, I respect them even more when I ask them, what's the opposing view here? And, and they're able to tell me, honestly, that uh, that capacity is important on the part of, of course, in the job I do. But I think uh, citizens also uh, at some point need to have that capacity. And I wanted to ask you this question because you were trained as a political scientist and you taught political science and you got elected to office and you've been, you know, you've been in office and you went back into teaching political science briefly. Um, So my students sometimes ask me this. um, What was the biggest surprise in terms of what you knew about sort of political science teaching you stuff? and what you learned when you got to the United States House of Representatives. You know, I often got, uh, I often get asked that question um, and I don't have a very exciting answer. I, <laughs> but because I, uh, I actually kind of was onto the game before I got there in the sense that I, uh, I was a staff member and that, that, that service started started out as an intern in a Senate office and, and came back for five summers all through graduate school. That experience was very, very important to me. And I wrote my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, toward the end of that period, interviewed a third of the Senate. And, and my dissertation was on policymaking in the, in the Senate, policy initiatives, where they came from, how they got, um, how they moved forward. And, uh, and so, and then I uh, had, I taught about Congress for a number of years and, and did more research along those lines. So, and, and I was part of that group of political scientists that included uh, Dick Fenno and others who, uh, who spent a lot of time interviewing members, studying case histories of how things actually happened. So I must say, uh, teaching political science, researching political science was a, was a pretty good preparation what I, for what I found there. There weren't a whole lot of just incredible surprises, although uh, I do talk in the book about how different it is, how, how different life in the Congress is from academic life and the kind of adjustments that are required. Uh, still, I can't really argue that I didn't know what I was in for. I, I didn't think that you didn't know what you were in for. I was just wondering if there was anything like you're like, oh, man, that was just not what I thought it was going to be like here. <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 if you're talking about the emotions and the reactions, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there is uh, the the uh, the highs and the low of, of political service in the House of Representatives, in my experience anyway, far surpassed what... Uh, what I ever experienced in any other aspect of my life for that, for that matter. Uh, I mean, there've been some really bitter disappointments. I mean, losing an election is a, was, was a wrenching experience. It, uh, it turns out it wasn't the end of the world. I managed to, uh, to learn from it, I think, and make a comeback, but, uh, I wouldn't recommend it to, to anyone. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, some of the disappointments of the Trump presidency uh, and what we went through after things we'd worked so hard for, like the Iran nuclear agreement, to see that trashed, to see uh, to see the uh, uh, Middle East diplomacy, two-state diplomacy, pretty much go down the tubes. Uh, just just uh, a lot a lot of disappointments that um, you really need to figure out how to how to bounce back from. But at the same time, great satisfaction in in things that we've been able to do. And when I go around my district now and see the effects of uh, large things and small uh, that uh, was able to achieve, I, I mean, a nine-year effort, nine years of appropriations work to get this uh, state-of-the-art environmental protection agency lab built here, which uh, is world-class and does it's the preeminent environmental lab in our country. And it turns out their local congressman had to do a heck of a lot of work to get that built. It wasn't just something that was going to happen otherwise. I mean, there, there are many, many things that are a source of satisfaction as well. 
And and the impression I got in reading through your book that you really do enjoy talking to your constituents and being being in your district and and sort of saying, "Hey, I I'm representing you. Let me know what you think." Is that is that as satisfying as it it certainly sounds like it is? Well, sometimes it's uh, less than satisfying. I mean, there are uh, I can I and I talk in the book about some pretty rough town meetings. Uh, Town meetings are interesting. The, we most members have town meetings, uh, and we've um, we've had experiences usually on both sides of that. But I've found town meetings, the atmosphere in town meetings, is a remarkable predictor of uh, of what's happening politically in in the country. And I would uh, I would uh, think of three periods where that was really true: the period when I lost the election, the period where Newt Gingrich was on the warpath and, and the uh, 94 election was in the making. Those were really rough town meetings. And first time we had to have law enforcement at our town meetings. And it just, it, it got really uh, tense. Uh, I can't say I enjoyed those interactions. Then the, uh, the early Obama era, I remember a uh, very town meeting in uh, one of my suburban communities, uh, very soon after Obama was elected. And that brought me down to earth really fast. I was euphoric about the outcome of the uh, 2008 election and, and, and just the tone of that meeting and some of the underlying racial uh, tensions, it, it really made me uh, realize pretty fast what was perhaps coming and it turned out it was coming with the Tea Party movement. But then thirdly, the, uh, the post-Trump uh, town meetings and there, uh, I was riding high, and I couldn't have enough town meetings. They, I mean, people were demanding town meetings, and um, we added supplementary town meetings at, at some of the local uh, bars and and uh, you know after workplaces for the younger crowd. On a political basis, we organized those. We just couldn't have enough town meetings, and and the uh, just the anger upset about uh, about Trump was 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 very very strong so so it uh, depends on the political season how much you uh, enjoy those interactions I don't think you have the luxury ever of just saying I don't want to have those interactions I, I you you know you modify them maybe in some ways to uh, to, to uh, avoid just being a punching bag but uh, one way or another you need to make yourself available and, and accountable. And that's what town meetings and other appearances like that uh, do, I think. Uh, although I, I do think uh, there are, uh, I'm, I'm all for, you know, targeting those meetings where you go to a retirement community or where you go to a workplace, you know, where they're not just all uh, come on, come all kinds of uh, gatherings. And and so finally, in, in terms of, the work in this book and your own work as a member of Congress. Um, what, what do you see on the horizon for the Congress in transition, as you note? Um, I know we've talked about, you know, the sort of need for a, a viable center-right party that, that is also willing to work within the system. But what's, what do you see as a forecast in this sort of post-Trump period for the U.S. Congress, there are people working on that uh, as we speak, and I talk uh, about the work of the uh, Commission on the, the uh, uh, Improvement of Congress. That's not the exact name, but Derek Kilmer is uh, is, is co-chairing a, uh, a commission along those lines. And there is an American Political Science Association advisory committee that was attached to that that made some very good. Uh, recommendations, for example, bringing back uh, congressional earmarks as a bipartisan way of serving our districts and exercising the power of the purse. They made another recommendation that uh, that we really should adopt, and that is to get rid of these nonsense votes on the debt ceiling. We're the only developed country that does that, and that's just a formula for partisan mischief. Uh, there, are, there are specific improvements that we need to make in terms of, uh, of the way we pay and train and, and deploy our staff. Uh, we, we talk with our 
foreign parliamentary counterparts often about the importance of professional staffing and good research, and we need to uh, make sure we maintain that our, ourselves. Um, we, uh, we, we, uh, in, in, I hope after this pandemic, the pandemic has added to the centralizing trends in the Congress uh, in, in ways that I that I hope we can, uh, you know, uh, get get off of and, and get the committees back to a more, uh, a more, uh, uh, not dominant role, but, a but, a, but a role that, uh, feeds into the, uh, legislative agenda more constructively and interacts with the leadership in, in ways that are, that are healthier in terms of the, uh, ability of, uh, subcommittees, individual members to, to contribute. I, uh, think there's a, a good agenda there to, to work on in terms of our internal organization. Um, you know, it, it, it does, um, I, I don't underestimate for a moment the differences between the parties these days and the stakes that I feel we as, uh, that exist with us as Democrats succeeding. I, and, and so I'm, I'm not someone who thinks um, institutional reform will take care of everything. Uh, the parties do differ. We have different visions, and um, I think it's up to our party to uh, govern as responsibly and uh, accountably as we possibly can. And I'm trying to make that happen right now. But uh, there are changes in the in the Congress and the way Congress works that whichever party is in control and whatever the balance of party forces look like, I think could make us a more functional institution, more uh, more rewarding for members to serve in and more legitimate in the eyes of the public. And I, I tried to, uh, to elaborate that in, in the book without, uh, unfortunately, without finding any silver bullet that will totally make things uh, come to, together. It's, uh, it, it's going to be a continuing uh, process. Well, I, I appreciate your, your putting pen to paper and, and not only writing the first edition, but also this fourth edition, because it's been really a pleasure to read and to talk to you about. Um, I want to thank uh, Representative David Price for joining me today on the New Books Network to talk about the congressional experience and institution transformed. This is the fourth edition published in 2021 by Rutledge Press. I assume one can buy this at Rutledge Press's website, and I'm sure other places where people buy books. Um, well, order it through your independent bookstore. Let's say that. <laughs> I appreciate that as well. And thank you very much, Representative Price, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it too.